Hello everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry and I have come from the farthest reaches of space to proclaim the doom of the human race. Galactus? Yes, yes. first appearance. <laughs> That's you are. Uh, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaquart, the best online and unusual source for comic books news, reviews, previews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, Julian Darius recently conducted an interview with Tim Callahan about his book, Grant Morrison, The Early Years, analyzing a period in Morrison's career where he mostly made sense. <laughs> and if you like this podcast and these articles and movies, you can support us via Patreon, the secret right. Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. So shall we start with the news because there's quite a lot quite a lot of them yeah can I just say like I know that over the past few episodes I've been sounding like Sam the Eagle from the Muppets this is not cultural this is not moral you are all weirdos and Alice Cote really pissed me off with the end of zero so I was predisposed to be a grouch today mm-hmm. but then eight house came out and, and everything is looking up oh so but okay. we'll get to that so let's start with the news there have been some pretty interesting licensing deals we'll start with those and Dynamite has announced that Warren Ellis and Jason Masters will be the creative team on a new James Bond ongoing series starting in November. So it's a Warren Ellis ongoing, so six issues? <laughs> Eight? I don't, I don't know. Nine Dynamite, and then his computer though. crashes? Dynamite, though? Would they... No, no, no. Would they replace him? Yes. I don't think so. Yes, because I think right now about Garth Ennis' Jennifer Blood, and he was replaced by L. Ewing six issues in. Now, wait, he was replaced or he stepped down he stepped like, down. voluntarily? Well, okay. that's what Warren Ellis does. You know, okay. he starts. He doesn't have the patience, I think, for long-form projects right now. On the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, this is in many ways the project that Warren Ellis has been waiting for his entire life. Because he's been uh, writing he's not, he's not waiting for it. He did it. Yeah. This is Desolation Jones, the prequel years. Is, this is Jenny Sparks, the prequel years. This is, I mean, really, like... Almost every character Ellis has ever written has he's been... He's British, he's grouchy, he's middle-aged, and, he's, and he shoots people. Yeah, it's like Iago from Aladdin. Like, there's a big surprise! Um, but, but, mm-hmm. what he does, he does well. You know, he's the best there is at what he does, and what he yeah. does is writing grouchy British guy who shoot, guys who shoot people. Pete Wisdom yeah. was another one of his. It's a double-edged from sword. From him, Soul River flows from the Pete Wisdom uh, fountain. But there's a danger here, which is that he could end up being completely unoriginal. Because, like, in the sense that James Bond is the archetype from which so many of his protagonists have descended, to go back to the source now and do James Bond is going to be like, well... Well, but it's not... He's, he's basically said eh? it's, not, it's not movie James Bond, it's novel James Bond, which is... A slightly is different, yeah, that's what he said in the first interview, hmm. which is a sort of a different beast. It's less of an action hero and more of a killer who does his job for the country because he really doesn't care. So like Sean Connery, basically. We're not really supposed to love him. Oh. Even Sean Connery had this slight charm to him, you know, yeah. intended. Well, that was the actor. That yeah. was not, okay. Well, what, the actor was the character for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, um, good luck. Uh, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I'm okay. a Warren Ellis fan. Speaking of Dynamite, they have also partnered with Atari of all... Okay, we'll get Dynamite that. partner with all things. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the theme. Atari, they're making comics based on Atari's game properties. Now, speaking as a gamer here, they probably could have picked a better partner <laughs> because... Could they afford a better partner? It's well, Dynamite. No, it's Atari, though, because Atari has had some bankruptcy issues lately. See, so they're both, you know, Dynamite doesn't have a lot of money, and Atari yeah. need all the change they can get. Like, 
two broke tastes that taste broke together. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know, know what to what, do what, with what, that. What, what, Atari, what did Atari do recently? Well, that's the thing. Their game catalog is, shall we say, antiquated even by the standards who was of someone who was around for the first Super Mario Brothers. Okay, so... so what, and these Pong? were not, no, I mean, well, pretty much. These were not games that were known for story or character or anything that you could translate into a comic. Like, these were games. Have that you were, read the Dynamite comic recently? Well, it, actually, you have for well, this yeah. podcast. Although, I wouldn't call that a typical Dynamite book, but we'll get yeah, to that. Yeah, but you know, le- um, le- lack of story and characters was never a big problem in the Dynamite yeah, catalog. But, but then it's like, so what's the appeal here? I mean, you're doing games based on. No, you're doing comics based on games that are older than most, than the average comic reader. I don't know where you would, like, what would you do? No, How would you comic is a nostalgia market. Not for this, like, well, comics is a nostalgia Gem and the Hologram can be a su- If Gem and the Hologram can be a success financially and critically, mm. anything is possible. Anything and everything. It depends who I the guess. talent is. A, g- a good writer and a good artist could take the worst concept and make it work. Even the best... Pac-Man, though? I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't know, but I'm not I'm the best artist or the best writer. The specific properties that they mentioned when they made the deal were just like, I'm reading them, and it's like, listen, I've been playing games since the late 80s. Even I don't remember half of this stuff. And the stuff that I do have, it's like, really? A dark, greedy missile like, command drama? I mean, listen, Missile Command was on the list, okay? So they are it's doing a dog Missile Command drama about, about Armageddon. What? Warnells can write that also. <laughs> oh my god. Warnells can write the Atari-verse. Are there going to be a like, special effect like boop, 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 boom? No, but the alternative covers would be very cheap to produce. Okay. Well, good luck again. I mean, I don't... This is the sort of thing where the the business decision itself seems weird to me. It's like, you could partner with any game developer today. And there are game developers who have comics. Like, you know, there are Assassin's Creed yeah. comics. Or well, Persia again, comics. I'm not saying... You know, it can be done. You could... Like, no, why you're Atari. saying could, but again, it's Dynamite. They're a pretty small publisher. When they have licenses, usually it's not the top-tier licenses, licenses right. properties. We've talked about it before. You know, first tier you have Dark Horse and IDW. Mm-hmm. Second tier is Boom. And... Somewhere is in the di- pits, in yeah. the abyss. Well, find no, and, and James, you know, when you said James Bond, I thought it was a bit out of their league because th- these are people who work with the Shadow, the Spider, the Green right. Hornet, all the old old heroes who can probably be bought now for pennies under the couch. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense, and and they're doing good work with them. You know, some of it, uh, the um, the Doc Evan Shaner. Um, Flash Gordon comic got mm-hmm. great reviews, okay. and some of the masks comic were be, were pretty good. But you know, whatever. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it. I just think that you know it's difficult enough to cross these two properties because video games and comics don't work the same narratively. Mm-hmm. So if you're gonna have that crossover in the first place, try and take something that has some kind of contemporary. Has there appeal. ever been a great video game based comic? I mean, the Scott, law of averages would dictate that there must have been, but if there was, yeah, I Scott Pilgrim that. is video game influence, but it's a whole different beast. Right. Well, Scott Pilgrim actually went the other way around. Started as a comic, ended up as a video game, and there was a movie in between. Yeah, but, Sam and Ma- uh, no, Sam and Max started as a comic also, right? Yeah. It was an alternative comic. But 
Um, there must have been some. I think I just don't there have been where. several comic based on uh, Team Fortress, I think. Short yeah, universe. Yeah, that's trips. like... Team Fortress doesn't have narrative. Like, yeah. It's, well, it's an it, immersion it narrative. Well, there's like EVE Online and all of those mm-hmm. like... and I Oh, well, there, there have been World of Warcraft comics, but... Must you mention these? You have to pay me to read them. I'm not <laughs> doing that for free. Okay, next. Uh, so there have been a few creative team shifts lately. Grant Morrison has been announced as editor-in-chief of Heavy Metal Magazine. Not a writer, an editor-in-chief of a magazine which I'm quite surprised to hear is still existing. Because this is 2015 and teenage boys can find boobs on the internet. When you think about it, this isn't a step down from Morrison or a step up. Or, or a lateral step. It's like... Stepping diagonally across multiple dimensions, well, uh, which for Morrison makes a lot of sense. Well, okay, Heavy Metal is the American version of uh, Metal or Not, the mm-hmm. famous uh, European science fiction fantasy slash boobs magazine, which yes. brought a lot of good talents to the world. America's Breast Comics. <laughs> um, but, you know, jokes aside, it's still being published. There are There is some decent talent over there. Uh, There, the, one of the recent uh, issues had the uh, Jack Kirby um, sketch art for the film that was never produced, the one that became the plot of Argo. Uh-huh. Which is an interesting project. I mean, the last heavy metal movie I saw was this anime no, 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 Michael Ironside. Re- remember, Jack Kirby did the art for the never produced film that the CIA uses as a cover to right. go into Iran, right. the, okay. Lord, the movie based on Lord of Light that became yeah. Argo. So they actually, they're actually about to print these sketches, which is an interesting project. And they have Anki Bilal and guys like that, guys like that. Um, Grant Grand Morrison, Morris. though? <laughs> well, as an editor in chief. What? He, he, he was never, he was never a guy who ran a project like this, right? Well. He, he was an hands, he was always a hands-on creator. Well, what DC have said over the past few years is that In terms of Morrison's function at the company, didn't they give him some kind of creative position? Yeah, but he never did anything with that. Nobody We don't ever, know. Nobody ever followed Morrison's drumbeat. He was always in his own weird corner. When he did his action comic, it was no, so he... out of sync with the rest of this universe as Superman in jeans and, uh, you know, hero of the working people thing. Isn't that where he is now? Well, yeah, but it, but at the time, you know, in Justice League, he was the regular Superman. Right. When he was doing his Seven Soldiers thing, which was with a lot of artists and a lot of backing. Oh, that's he, just because nobody knew what he was doing. He was all on his own. Grant Morrison is always an hands-on writer. He was never a project manager. Again, like, we, we would need to know the behind-the-scenes specifics of yeah. what exactly Morrison was doing at DC because they have credited him. I, again, like, yeah. hard to know if it's accurate or not, but they have credited him as, like Jeff Johns, being a sort of, quote-unquote, architect of the DCU as a whole, regardless of whether or not they took specific cues from him. Like, does the new 52 look the way it does in part because of Morrison's influence? DC would say yes. I think, I think if not, you ask Grant Morrison... Did you stamp approve all those Jimmy redesigns? He would say oh, no. Right. He would say no, I did not, good sir. Only well, with a Scottish accent. really interesting uh, because I, heavy metal doesn't have a great reputation. For all the talent that they have, you know, they are still known as the boob comic that, 
is still around and really wants to be 2000 AD and will never be 2000 AD. Well, maybe now they can be. That's, I don't, that's, that's a question of what will Grant Morrison do? What, what does this title mean in the physical world? Maybe it's just an honorary title of, well, we can stamp his name on the cover for a few issues no, and the Grant Morrison fans will flock. Not for editor-in-chief. And also, why would he be willing to take that? Like, Grant Morrison doesn't need... The money. No, it's not that he doesn't need the money. It's that he doesn't need the the fake prestige, mm. so to speak. Like, he doesn't well, need yeah. to be declared editor-in-chief just because. If he took this position, I'm assuming it's because he wants to do something with so, heavy So, you metal. know what? When when he actually com- when this actually comes to term, I want us to review the first I Grant think that Morrison that would be led issue. Like, you know, we should also be looking out at the moment for if there are any news of new hires at Heavy mm. Metal, any new staff that's coming along. And based on that, we'll see. Because I have a really hard time believing that Grant Morrison wants to produce material of the type that you have seen in heavy metal until now. Like, that would be too much of a stretch, I think. Um, Speaking of creative team decisions, Tess Fowler and Tamara Bonvillain have replaced Stefan Sedgwick on Rat Queens, starting with issue 11. And I have mixed feelings about it. Because? Because when Sedgwick... Well, Sedgwick is stepping down because of illness. It's not because that this was intentional. As far as I can tell, he was meant to be the regular ongoing. It just means this book is cursed. But um, Sedgwick proved himself, I think, in terms of, on the one hand, maintaining parody with Upchurch's original style while still having it be his own thing, right? It was consistently top quality. But on the other hand, when they fired Upchurch... We said at the time that Fowler was the most logical choice. She had just done the Braga special. Mm. And quite frankly, it looks good for an image book that is promoted as having excellent female protagonists to have a female artist. So, like, on the one hand, it makes sense. On the other hand, I really enjoyed Sedgwick's work. And I kind of wish that he wasn't leaving. Well, you... But, you like know, you said yourself, she was a good artist on the on the special, yeah. so there's no reason to feel too bad about it. Yeah, it's not a you know, this is not it's not a step down, it's just it's, step aside. Yeah, she has a very different uh style than Sedgwick and Upchurch, mm-hmm. but that's not a bad thing in the context of you know, this storyline that they're doing. As long as the writing keep its quality, I well not I could care less, but I care little about the art because this is one exceptionally written comic. And the art is there not to be such something amazing, mind-blowing, ooh, look at the pretty visuals. It's there to tell the story. Yeah. It was never one of those avant-garde-ish J.H. Williams III, look at the spreads. You know, it's just good storytelling. That's what you need for Rat Queens. Right. So, you know how in the movie The Hangover, these three guys get into a car and they drive away? And you see, like, them disappearing into the horizon. I drove away from that movie, yes. So Rick Remender, Jonathan Hickman, and Kieran Gillen all announced separately, but very close together in time, that they're leaving Marvel. Well, the way that they phrased it is that each of them just spontaneously decided to take a leave of absence or, like, step back from mainstream comics. Well, Kieran Gillen is leaving the Marvel U. He's staying with the Marvel company because he's still writing... The ongoing Darth Vader, right. for their which is Star an Wars. academic distinction. Well, no, no, because I... Darth Vader is, you know, uh, a series that will continue for as long as it sells, but it's not like it has to come out like on a mandate. Like if 
if Gillen were to get up and leave Vader, it would not be the end of the world. No, no, but it's you know. a good seller, and so Marvel wouldn't want yeah, to drop it. But anybody could do like that it. job. The question is, can anybody keep it on the good sell side? The See, inertia. Is, the inertia. This is the thing. It's Darth Vader. Well, like, you have to expect. It's like you know. It's like the X Men. You have to expect that on some level, the brand recognition of Darth Vader, especially now that you have. You know, he appeared on on Rebels recently, and now they're you know Star Wars, the new movies coming out, and yeah, but I don't think like inertia, James Earl Jones is actually part of that cast. But I would not be surprised. Inertia like, can't hold it forever. At a certain point, a good writer is needed. You know, the X Men line has been sinking, drafting downward slowly for years, sales wise. Yeah, we both remember a time when the Avengers was the was the unpopular brand. Right. And the X-Men had the thousand team books, and the lowest of them could outsell the highest Avenger but team But that book. change had nothing to do with the quality of the writer. Well, we don't like the writer, but people no, like... It, it changed aside. because of Brian Bendis, for but good or ill. But it changed because, like, what did Bendis do? The reason that the Avengers were not popular at the time is, like, who was the roster for Jeff John's Avengers, right? So you had the Wasp. You had Hank Pym. You had all these characters who, you know, they're C-listers at yes. best when you're being like really... And then what does Bendis do? So he takes the new Avengers and they have Spider-Man and they have Wolverine. And it's like you are putting icons who sell books in your roster. Of course the, the thing went up. You know, and so by the same token, we have these three creators who I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that collectively... They represent the major foundation of everything that has been going on at Marvel for at least the last five years, right? Well, yeah. Gillen was doing Loki and, and all of these things, and Hickman has been doing Avengers and, and Secret Wars, etc. Remender was doing Captain America. Like, these are people who, by sheer coincidence, I hated everything that they were doing, but that's me. <laughs> it's like... They're all leaving Sean, do you have anything to do with that? I will neither Did confirm you... nor deny the presence of voodoo dolls in my attic, surrounded by lit candles and... See, because if that's your attempt in revenge, them living for image and getting more money for their books is the worst revenge Well, scheme how is the... possible? Wait, 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 wait. They're not leaving for image. They have been at image, yeah. so it's not like... Well, they're just doing more projects at image. Uh, Rick okay. they moved from two books at image to three, so the, the workload is probably going to be too much to do these and Marvel. I wish them and success, th- but I do think... We've putting talked- on my tin hat for a second. Mm-hmm. Do you see how nice it looks? Uh, uh, just in terms of... Because there have been discussions lately of greater editorial interference post-Secret Wars. Yes. And certainly Secret Wars itself represents an event that stepped on a lot of feet. And we, in fact, talked about the idea of, you know, this quote-unquote false reboot, Right. Where a book like Ms. Marvel is starting again at number one for no reason. Same creative team, same. Ms. Marvel, Howard the Duck. Less Howard than, the Duck. Less than five issues in. That's the shortest ongoing comic book I think Marvel has the ever published. The preview text itself acknowledges like, yes, number one again. Uh, all new Hawkeye, so it's now all new, all new. All uh, new, new Hawkeye. All Marvel new Hawkeye. needs to open a dictionary because their <laughs> version does not contain, either does not contain the word new, or it's a bit confused and new is simply the same thing all over again. That's their right. definition of the word new. Well, the bottom line is that the departure of these... Well, creators... their definition of number one is 57 to 100. So it's, <laughs> it's okay. Anywhere in that span, yes. really. Um, one, the number that comes after one. 
One day it'll just be like a series of number ones. Yeah, like the milk, know. like the milk and cheese thing when the milk and cheese was first running. Every issue was a, num- a new number one. Or a Jim Zub and Skull Kickers. Yeah. Like all new Skull Kickers, Kickers Dark Skull Kickers. Kickers, Dark Skull Kickers, uh-huh. Dark number one. Oh boy. Anyway, uh, they're leaving a lot so of. So it does represent like a substantial change in well, terms of what's uh, going to be happening. You know, I think I think it's good because change needs to happen and Marvel needs to shift these creators a bit, just as you said. We uh, we didn't enjoy Hickman's stuff. We didn't like yeah. Ramander's. I'm run. happy to see the backs of all three yeah. of them. To be honest, uh, I'm I I really like uh, Karen Gillan's work at Marvel and otherwise. But funny, what was he doing recently at Marvel aside from Darth Vader, Iron Man, wasn't it? And mm-hmm. no, no, because no, he finished Iron Man more than a year ago. They had the Superior Iron Man, which was Tom Taylor, and then well, Siege, I guess is his no, but that's big goodbye. Yeah, but it's but uh, what was he doing? In the what was he? What was he doing? See, he wasn't doing anything. He's no. not leaving anything when that was he was writing. Avenger, when did Young Avengers end? Last year, uh, two, two, one, year, one year, two years ago. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay, well. So he wasn't doing anything other than Darth Vader anyway. Right. So, you know, I, mean, again, like, I, I wish them good image, luck yeah. at their at their new home. Sure. In Meanwhile, which, yes. in the wake of their departure, Marvel has been announcing a few... Uh, a few, a minor few number ones. All of them. Now, all okay. of the number ones. So, so let's preface this by saying that Marvel we- is relaunching Batman and Superman. <laughs> <laughs> we we'll talk about the previews on the number ones and the specific books when they're solicited. Yes. I think just in terms of we, we don't want to double bill. Yeah, but there was something significant here, which a is that- a brouhaha. Yeah, we can call it that. I think <laughs> that's accurate. What happened was that. Marvel had intended to release the previews to retailers at a certain date. Bleeding Cool beat them to it. And started posting, like, one by one, the creative yeah, teams. Yeah, Marvel have sent a special booklet, a previews booklet to the retailers. previews. Yes, to the retailers. Previews number one. And one retailer or more decided to scan it and send the information to Bleeding Cool, mm-hmm. as you do. Yes. And that upset Dan Slott. Dan Slott was terribly hurt and terribly upset and he got into a fight with bleeding cool's editor-in-chief hannah means shannon and what he said was so we need to talk about bleeding cool in this context right and here's the thing you can have different opinions about rich johnston and the way that he does things and whether or not journalistic ethics are a part of this process or need to be a part of this process That's a whole tangent that we don't need to get into. What I want to talk about is the audacity of Dan Damn Slot. Because he complained that Bleeding Cool was making the lives and jobs of Marvel staff difficult. To which I say, so what? Like, the fact that he... Dan Slott seems to have this expectation that it is the job of comics book journalism, such as it is, right? This isn't Barbara Walters, but we deal with what we have. That it's their job to facilitate Marvel sales and to make life easy for them. Well, that's what he grown used to. That's what Newsarama and CBR does. Newsarama does it, you know, CBR does it. And I remember a time when Newsarama actually had content as opposed to here are the top 10 Marvel heroes we'd like to see in next year's crossover. 
That's what they do now, and that's fine. Like, that's not a, a strike against them. It's like, that's what you choose to do. That's okay. And I guess that's what Slot is used to. Every- but here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Bleeding Cool doesn't work for Marvel. It's not their job yeah, to cool. do PR for Marvel Comics or yeah, to make Dan Slot's life easier. Yeah, Dan Slot. Bleeding Cool works for Avatar Press. Get your priorities straight. <laughs> no, but it's, like, it's their job to publish the 1,001 different disgusting covers for Cross. He's complaining, in essence, that they don't tow the Marvel company line. But if you want them to tow that line, pay them. Why are you... The the entitlement was what drove me crazy because I'm reading it. And, of course, it was on Twitter. Which goes back to what you've always said. is that Just why does he still have a Twitter account? Him and Stephen Wacker and Tom Rudder, they have to go. I remember uh, there was a podcast, the Crack Podcast. And mm-hmm. David Wong, who was uh, one of the... One of oh, correct leading yes. writers and, I think, chief editor for a while. Mm-hmm. What he said is, our lesson to new writers is this. Never... Ever, ever, <laughs> under any circumstances, ever, ever, respond to comments, look at the comments, read the comments, or believe in the existence of comments, because responding to your readers, when you're online, when you're a writer online, would lead to your downfall, no matter if it's good or bad. But that's not what this was. Yes. Reading Cool are not readers of Dan Slot, right? They were not criticizing his writing. He came after them, right? Yeah. His complaint was that... They leaked information that Marvel was holding on to as if Marvel has never leaked anything, and, right? And, and Go ask the ladies on The View and, how they found out about yeah, Thor. The odd thing about it, that the one he should complain about is the retailer, retailer, whoever he is, who... They know who he is. It's uh, Dennis Barger. Oh. Uh-huh. You're shocked, right? See, uh, all <laughs> these Barger. small wars, I don't care about uh, it. But... Like again, if if he had gone after the retailer, I'm, I'm even trying- the retailer has a legitimate gripe here. He's like, "Excuse me, you are holding on to information that is relevant for us to sell comics. Why is it my job to make your I life assume, easier?" I assume when they send these booklets, it's part of a non-confidentiality agreement of don't publish it before time. Just like when you get books early, you're not supposed to sell them before due time. There is an agreement right. for such things, and Marvel has Marvel has the right to decide this is when we want to publish this. This is this is when we want to bring these things online. Sure. That's fine. If they Bleeding had framed cool. it that way, then that would have been fine. But Bleeding Cool is under no such yeah. obligations. Yeah. Why does Slot has to stand up and talk for Marvel? That's That was his mistake. No. he. I mean, it is something that is directly relevant to him because one of his books was leaked, right? But the problem here is just the entitled I, way I that he... I don't even get the... What was leaked? He pitches a fit on the internet for the whole world to see and acts a fool because... You revealed something that we were going to before, reveal next Before week. we talked about it, I was damn sure that that was all the, that, that was a planned leak. How can you tell the difference? Yes. A week early, a week. Who cares? Why, why does it matter? He, he basically tapped into this. There's, cause there's, there has been this ongoing discussion about bleeding cool, right? It's a, it's a source of constant controversy. People are always talking about, you know, is this journalism? Should well, we pay it any attention? It's Is he close just trolling? What Rick does, uh, Rick Johnson and the Bleeding Cool crew do, is closer to journalism than most comic book journalistic sites, but right. it's still 60 to 80% rumor mongering. Uh, right. I would prefer them to be closer in spirit to the outhouse, but they're bigger. Uh, well, Rick the Johnson with the doesn't owe anything to me. Right. Well, the problem with the outhouse is also, like, by 
speaking their mind so often, yeah. they tend to get blacklisted, which is, I see that as a sign of quality because they're saying things that people need to hear. The thing with Bleeding Cool is like, you know, they took this retail information and they leaked it early. Whether you want to talk about if that was the right thing to do or not, or whether that served any purpose, it's like Dan Slott basically like throwing up his toys and screaming like, you know, ah, you're making my life hard. Tough, you know. Sucks to be you, Dan Slott. I mean, what did he expect? It's like, I, I really wish that creators would. If you have to use Twitter, if you absolutely have to, you have like this burning desire to go online and tweet, think first. Like, what reaction did he expect there to be, is what I'd like to know. It's like, who was going to stand up and say, yeah, Dan Slott's right. Bleeding Cool should do what Marvel tells him to do. Pay them! You know, what if they're on your payroll, then you can expect them to, you know, toe the party line and, and do what Marvel wants them to do. Otherwise, like, you have no leg to stand on here and just acting an idiot and I'm sick of it okay something a bit nicer maybe okay so there was another image expo and there were a lot of stuff that was announced and we're not going to talk about it <laughs> yeah. again like our, our <laughs> policy is basically we, we're, we're going to wait for the previews, previews. but uh, there the was one... something interesting that came out of the image expo yeah the big news as far as we both are concerned is that panel syndicate The previously online only, we promise, we swear, Mm -hmm. pinky swear, uh, the Brian K. Vaughn and uh, Marcus Martin Project Private Eye, which we reviewed, what, five episodes ago? Six? And really enjoyed it. Is getting printed in a hardcover format. Thank you! You know, I know you swore you didn't and a lot of people (laughs) would be annoyed, but I want this in print. Well, the trade-off is interesting too, right? (laughs) In return for Image Comics printing the Private Eye... Brian K. Vaughn and Marcus Martin are going to work on The Walking Dead. Does this mean I have to start reading The Walking... No, it doesn't. Well, it we can doesn't. read. We can we can review the first issue. Do we have when, to? <laughs> we can. We don't have to. We can. Um, are, you're curious now. And they sort of... Not, not curious enough. I mean, it is still The Walking well, Dead. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of admiring Kirkman's ability to keep this thing afloat. What, more than 120 issues? Almost 10 years. I think so, yeah. yeah. 10 years now. Ongoing small press at the time, alternative black and white comic, which, st- which was a zombie comic before it was a, the thing, mm-hmm. a thing, still ongoing, still successful, 10 years. Yeah. That's, you know, like it or hate it, that's a success. No, and, I, I tip my hat to him. And it's... every, every so while he makes something, something within the series that keeps it afloat. The going bi-weekly, the series war, the killing regrimes at the time, you know, mm-hmm. but that was like three, four years ago. I think so, yeah. So he, he manages to find way to keep readers hooked. And, well, there's a new one for you, bringing in a better writer. <laughs> the question is, I mean, after Brian K. Vaughn leaves... Yeah, it's going to be like, well, now that we had a taste of the good life, I don't know if we want to go back maybe to Maybe Brian K. Vaughn will leave and he's like... Hey, Image, can I launch a zombie comic? Ooh. Brian K. Vaughn. You might get a taste dead, for it. dead walking. And really, it's Image. They'll be like, yeah, sure, whatever you want. Again, like I, I have ambivalent feelings about this because Vaughn and Martin marketed the private eye as yeah. being digital exclusive. Yeah. And this is now the second initiative by a known comic creator that promises digital exclusivity 
and then goes to print because Mark Waid's thrill bent is yes, going the exact yes, same direction, yes. right? And don't make promises you full don't. Of you lies. can't keep. Thrill bent, thrill bent was just full of lies. Every single webcomic is late. I wasn't thrilled. I wasn't bent on well, a shade. I might have been bent because like every single webcomic is late. Every single one ends on like this unsatisfying cliffhanger, insufferable, which was like the flagship title, Mark Wade's webcomic. So you're saying insufferable title was correct. Mm, and not just a clever name. Because it read like the ending reads like Wade was just like, Well, I'm done. I'm bored. To hell with all of this. And now like there is another Vaughn and Martin project coming up through Panel Syndicate, right? It's not a sequel to Private Eye, they're doing something new. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you are garnering support, at least in part for people who want digital exclusivity. And to I go back and around, and like, I, I, I my guess is I don't that think, this... I don't think there's a lot of people who want digital exclusivity. The only problem is that they promised and they swore and they're like jumping on their feet and saying, digital only. If only they didn't say anything, if it only was, we're doing this project digitally and that's it, and maybe in the future we'll print it, maybe not, we don't guarantee anything, right. it would have been okay. And nobody would be no, angry about it. They didn't even have to say, maybe we'll print it, maybe they'll not. We'll ju- they, dash- they just had to say, we're doing a digital comic. I mean, it's, Don't make promises it's the for the future. They, exactly. It's the fact that they guarantee something. And again, like I, I applaud the ingenuity here, because my guess is that the reason it's this specific trade-off is so Image does not directly profit from the private yeah, eye. We, we've talked about Warren It'll Ellis go... we've talked about Warren Ellis earlier and mm-hmm. remember when he was all like damn Marvel, damn DC, damn Marvel, damn DC and then he came back. No, and that then was came... different though. No. That was different. Don't... That was a situation where I'm gonna he... go on my own in the old Bester Manifesto and do your own comic. Sure. Oh, Moon Knight. But you're forgetting that back then when Ellis made his big statement, mm-hmm. right? Image wasn't what it is today. Yeah. If but, it had been, he might not have gone back Yeah, but don't don't make grand statements you can't keep. Or you're, you're, or if you make the grand statement, keep it. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like... And again, I don't know how accurate it is to say that people were not interested in digital exclusivity because I know that a big part of that discussion is really the desire to break Diamond's monopoly yeah, but, but, and but, say, like, we don't want to deal with the retailers. We don't want to do print comics anymore. We want to do a new... This was the exact same reasoning that Mark Wade gave yeah, but when they the, lost Sternberg. But on the other it's hand... Like, let's when, do other things. But on the other hand, when we talked about it, we both agreed that uh, the comic... That Private Eye was basically a print comic and digital. There wasn't anything yeah. done to make it unprintable. It wasn't like, I don't know, certain XKCD print. Yeah, it wasn't like yeah. the big XKCD strips, which they're printing XKCD still. And I have no idea what they're going to do with stuff like Time. Or probably the, just skip it. I mean, the yeah. thing with XKCD is that it's not a serial narrative. Yes. You can skip specific panels that challenge the print format. But then it's like, well, what's the point? It's just weird. It's just a really Shall weird Shall we move situation. on to TV news? Sure. When we talked two days ago, you were like, oh, there isn't much TV news to talk about this episode. And then all the news just happened at once. You could have said, there isn't a lot of money in my bank account right now. <laughs> I should have said that. There are a lot of book deals coming my way. Oh, my God. If only. <laughs> so what, what's, what's the TV world brings to us? Uh, should I? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dark Horse have announced a first look deal with Universal Studios. And the TV series possibilities announced are Harrow County, mm. Umbrella Academy, mm. and Concrete. Mm. Concrete! 
Yes. That's weird. Please. That's all of it. So weird. I don't even okay. like Harrow County, but I don't uh, care. Harrow County is an as a new ongoing horror series. Mm-hmm. I've haven't read it. Have you? No. Oh. I read the first <laughs> issue and I was like, eh. Okay. Well, there's like two issues out. That's a fast turnout. <laughs> We're gonna adopt the whole thing for like five for five minutes. You're gonna turn into some Game of Thrones stuff. Or gonna <laughs> use issue. Well, we've reached issue two in the like, first twenty minutes of episode one. What's next? Uh, concrete is a strange choice. Mm-hmm. It's a very well respected. I don't think it's been published for years now. Uh, an indie comic about a it's guy. It's digital. Yeah, it's digital. About a guy who's kidnapped kidnapped by aliens Something and like has his mind transferred into a giant concrete body. And then he returns to Earth and goes on with his normal life. Yeah, it's not an action. No, no. He writes political speeches, I believe. Yeah. He's like, it's, it's an, it's an Aaron Sorkin project (laughs) with a guy who's a giant concrete body. It's really an interesting series. I never quite read the entire thing sequentially because (laughs) when it was reprinted, then like the issues were printed out of order or something. Like it's, it's hard to sort of reconstruct the reading order. that not happening. Okay. But, um, and Umbrella then, Academy. Now that is interesting. How, how would you do it in live action without looking utterly well, ridiculous? Hey, have they said that it's live action specifically? No, well, because they did I, not. it's okay. hard for me to believe that concrete would be live action. Well, no. That would be, you'd need CGI at least for the body. No, because the body isn't very articulative. You can do with a good animatronic, uh, good costume work, Rick Baker style right. thing. Could happen. Because he's and not like, he's not jumping around. He's a big pile of concrete. That's the thing. Maybe can, they can replace the, the actor with just a concrete. <laughs> like a block of concrete. Yes. I am speaking to you telepathically. Mr. Um, Ed. And, um, oh my god, Mr. Ed. There, and, um, there you okay. go. Umbrella there, Academy yeah. is a series by Jared Way and Bob? Gabriel Bob? I think so, yeah. Or Fabio Moon. I can never remember which one of the One twins. of the two. One of the twins. About a group of children, child superheroes who have a very messed up family lives. And, and the word up... superheroes is sort of like misleading because they do not wear capes. They're not. They have like... tiny domino masks. They do, but like they're not. Anyway, they're child, they're children with superpowers and yeah. they have a very messed up family situation and there's a lot of odd time travel going around. And it's phenomenal. It is easily one of the best projects that Dark Horse has put out. It's it's a very good series. Um, And now it's going to be on TV. Maybe. Maybe. You know, first look doesn't promise anything. I I feel like if if these are the options, right, and you were to go to a TV executive Mm -hmm. and be like, so, you know, there's Concrete, which is like this deep philosophical... Mm -hmm. You know, discussion about this guy who's trapped in this form and he can't, like, he doesn't have mm. physical sensation anymore, etc. And then, you know, Umbrella Academy. So it's a bunch of kids with superpowers who, like, blow up Dallas and have, like, violins that can Speak- shatter windows. Yeah, speaking of Dark Horse there's projects, a monkey. If, if you were to, if I were to choose the Dark Horse projects, one of the recent ones, I would say Colder. They Colder? C- they could do a good, a good, a good post supernatural, uh, better than Hellblazers. Uh, theory. Right. Now, I think the, the, we're, we're, we don't even know anything about how this is gonna look because it could be good, it could be Daredevil, or it could be John Constantine, or even worse, it could ooh. be, it could be Lucifer. Ooh. We're the Umbrella Academy kids! Played by Justin Bieber and co. Oh. I, I don't know, whoever plays... Umbrella Academy in High School Musical 5. <laughs> the, wi- the Wizards oh, of Waverly no. Palace. No, 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 <laughs> we don't need that. But, 
a Nickelodeon yeah. style yeah. series. Obviously, there's going to be some adaptational drift here, but wouldn't future the giant Eiffel Tower coming to life and trying to destroy Paris? <laughs> One of the I hope so. Wouldn't that be nice? I remember Paul O'Brien, which I, I always mention him, reviewed the first issue, and he was like, "So when they announced Jared Way is writing a comics, I was skeptical." Everyone was skeptical. And then it opened with a wrestler elbow dropping a giant gorilla, which is the least emo thing in the universe. Mm -hmm. And I was hooked. That's, I think, like, when they look back and they're going to talk about, like, Gerard Way in comics, I think, like, O'Brien's reaction there was the react. Every single critic I know was like, I thought this was going to be some... Pretentious, boring... Self-mutilating, emo, my feelings, you don't understand my feelings, and it was not that at all like yeah. it was i don't you read it and it's like jared way so is a good writer so which comic company doesn't have a, a big tv deal or a movie deal because marvel has them dc has them valiant has them uh this boom have dark horse well boom boom does does it the other way around they take tv shows and make them into comics right but then you would say something like the midas Fle- well i well, think well, that's well, more movies right Midas Flesh could be a movie. A lot of their series could be TV shows. I could imagine a uh, sitcom version of uh, the one we reviewed, O Kill Strike. Oh, well, O Kill Strike would be tricky because it's intertextual in the extreme. Like, you need to know comics to get well, the point of Kill Strike. Unless they did him as, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and then they could. like, get to the chopper! Well, um, after Terminator no the Genesis here. and its critical and financial failure, nobody wants to do that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, like, if O Killstrike were an Arnold Schwarzenegger parody, now it would be like you're punching down. <laughs> and, like, leave poor Arnold alone. Okay. Uh, Some casting news. Okay. Uh, so Vixen from the animated CW series that no one has been talking about uh, has been cast. It's Megalyn Echikonoki, I hope I got that name right, from CSI Miami and the following, which indicates that she does not make smart career choices because the following, no. Um, it has been retroactively announced that this is a six, six episode. No, 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 it was, it was originally announced when we talked about it, when we mentioned it. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was a six issue mini for the first season at least. Right. Obviously, if it's successful, they're going to do more, uh, Agent Carter style. Oh, okay. I assume, you know. Well, they said that, I mean, they can't, Grant Gustin and Stephen Amell and, um, Yeah, it's part of the DC TV universe. Yeah, it's the CW it's universe. It's part of the Arrow, Flesh, Legendverse. There no. should be a name for that thing. I the guess Arrowverse? It's the Arrowverse. Cause he was Must first. we? Must we respect the Arrow? Cause you can't say the CW-verse because that would include Smallville. And Smallville is out of continuity by default, so. It's sort of a weird yeah. scenario. Like, I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. I guess you kind of have the to DC call it the Arrowverse. The DC TVerse? No. The, no, because the DC Super... TVverse. No, because Supergirl isn't part of it. She might be. No, it's a different company, right? Initially, they said that it, it's being broadcast on two separate channels, but it has the same showrunner. Mm. And there were discussions of it might be possible at some future date for The Flash specifically, not Arrow, but for The Flash to cross over with Supergirl. Maybe. Well, because the flesh would look really stupid there. I can lift buildings. I shoot people with pointy uh, sticks. I don't know. I feel yeah. like the flesh has established itself well enough that you would be watching it for the character, not mm. like who would win in a race. But okay. in any event, so uh, that's one version of, of casting news, and, and good for her. I hope that she pulls it off. Something a little more relevant to me. 
is that French Cambodian actress Elodie Young has been cast as Electra for season two of Daredevil, which has already started filming, by the way. Mm. Uh, she was in G.A. Joe Retaliation, which is not good. Did you see that movie? I have seen that movie. It's the better of the G.A. Joe movies. I have a G.I. No, G. actually, Joe... it's the, it's the second best G.A. Joe movies because the first is the animated one. The second is G.I. Joe Retaliation, and the worst is the first G.I. Joe uh, Rise of Cobra. Thing. So I have a G.I. Joe Retaliation story. Yes. I was returning from a conference in Chicago, and the flight left at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And they were showing G.I. Joe Retaliation. And I was like watching the movie as I'm falling asleep and waking up and falling asleep because, you know, flying coach is really uncomfortable. And everybody knows that. And, you know, cramped quarters. And so... I kept falling asleep during the film and missing huge chunks of the movie. And yet when I got to the end, I'm like, well, I guess that held up as well as can be expected. I'm not sure if that's like, if I were to watch the whole thing, would it detract or would it add? But the one scene that I did see in its entirety was Jinx's fight with Storm Shadow. Elodie Young can do action. Well, assuming it was her and not some... No, no, no. I mean, from the quote, you can tell that it's her. Okay. So... She could pull this off. And I mean, I have to say, like, speaking as someone who has been waiting for Electra through all of season one of, of the Netflix series, the first poster they put up where it's like the magazine mm. uh, article, you know, The Devil of Hell's Kitchen with a sigh impaled through it. I was like, yep, I'm ready. Uh, we'll give it a look. Yes. An unfortunate retraction. Uh, we previously celebrated the fact that Ava DuVernay announced, was being announced, not celebrated. I sell, I was okay. happy about it. And now it turns out that she will not be directing Black Panther after all. And I'm saying good for her and good for Marvel because they split up early and didn't do the Edgar Wright, let's spend 10 years on this thing. We only could to break. have had it all. I mean, I, I, okay. So I, we, we've had this discussion already about, you know, Marvel and directors and auteurs. And we don't have to rehash that because yes. you were right. Like you know, there is that tension. Marvel between... is a studio system. Yeah. Okay. Through and through. I will say though, they have shot themselves in the foot big time because by having it be known that they were courting Duvernay, they created an expectation with their audience that you know, the first African American superhero that Marvel is putting in the leading position. African. Correct. My mistake. The first African. Superhero that Marvel is putting in the leading position would have had a director who was a black woman. That seemed like it would have answered a lot of criticism that Marvel has been taking because of diversity both on screen and behind the screen. And now Duvernay is out. And I can't blame her for this because what she said, if you read between the lines of her statement, it's very clear that, you know, she had a specific idea for Wakanda. Marvel was like, that's a great idea. Here's what we want you to do. And like Edgar, right? She's like, okay, I see where this is going. Thank you, but no thank you. And she actually, she even said, it's better that we find that out now than in the middle of the movie. So the time frogs, must they be a part of the plot? Uh, yes, yeah, they yeah, must. Yeah, yeah. So I feel, but again, like now they've created this sort of, it's the same problem that DC had when Michelle McLaren stepped down from Wonder Woman. It's like you have created a very positive public relations image by saying, you know, Wonder Woman will be directed by a, by a female director, so there's less of an expectation of not getting it, right? Of making mistakes that would be attributed to... A male director. Exactly. And now it's like, well, if they if Peyton Reed or the Russos end up directing Black Panther, 
we're going to have a problem. Like, it is going to backfire on them in exactly the way they didn't want it. Who Fun. could do a good Black Panther movie? Angela Robinson. She did what movie? Angela Robinson is the highest grossing black female director of all time. She did, well, okay. So she did Herbie Fully Loaded. Okay, fine. But she also directed a few you episodes. You cannot see my face. <laughs> you have like this. If you were wearing pearls right now, you'd be clutching them. Quizzical. But, <laughs> but I will say this. She directed a few episodes of the remake of Charlie's Angels on TV that lasted for like four episodes. The scripts were crap, but the action scenes were decent. So it's like, I feel like she would be, because now they have to, you know what I mean? Like now Marvel has to actively be looking for directors who match on the optic level, at least, like in terms of how it appears, has to be on DuVernay's level. She didn't want to play ball, that's fine, but I feel like you cannot now go and say, well, we're bringing in John Favreau. Because then it'll be like, you know, it, it's it forfeits all the goodwill they built up uh, by courting Duvernay in the first place. I I think at the end Marvel care less about the goodwill than about the good change they they will get for that movie. If that were the case, they would never have pursued her in the first place because she was known. no. Because they thought they they probably thought she would play ball. Why would she, they think that? Because for all her success critically. She's still a new director. She's still fresh on the directing scene. Right. And Marvel had a history. And DC has a history. And studios as a whole have a history of taking a new promising director and basically bullying them. Not bullying, just forcing them to do their bidding. Is that the case with DC too? I don't think so. Well, okay, not DC. How much the recent, DC the recent, you know, the recent, the recent Jurassic World movie, the most successful movie of the year is a, Young indie director, the guy who did Safety Night Guaranteed, a small okay, right. indie fleek, taken straight from that to doing a re- a huge multi hundred million dollar franchise. But you don't have to work very hard with Jurassic. Park, ba- basically, though. because the studio said, "Well, we can make him do what we want. He's he's not going to stand up to us. He's a small time. You can't take someone well known for these projects because they would have their own vision and then you would get the Zack Snyder version. But the problem with that logic is that Eva DuVernay, she may not have a very long filmography, but what she does have indicates pretty strongly that she is someone who was known for having a specific vision and having a specific, like, identity as an auteur. So, I, so by quoting her, I, know, in the first I, place, I think what Marvel thought and. You know, uh, it's hard saying that because I think what they thought, the chief thought... No, they I mean, thought she, she her would... statement reads very clearly. Yeah. They clearly expected to be able to dictate terms to her. Yes. But if that was what they wanted, why pursue her in the first place? They thought she would play ball. She's a, she was nominated for an Academy Award. She's the first black female director to be nominated for an Academy that Award. Why would she... Like, why would they have that expectation? Maybe they the thought only... their visions would cinch. Maybe, I don't know. And, and look, of course, look, it makes you wonder, like, what could she have said to them that would be like, no, absolutely not. We can't work together. Well, maybe she wanted them to drop the whole Black Panther harem thing. Hmm? T'Challa has a harem of women. Oh. That's part of the myth for oh, a long, oh, long time. Oh, oh, I don't know. I'm just from, there's a lot okay. of, there's a lot of things at the Black Panther that wouldn't play nice to a modern audience. Especially and, with a black director. And a lot, no, and a lot of it is stuff that Priest, uh, Christopher Priest in his run always said, never make the mistake that this is an African-American superhero. 
Never make the mistake that he's African superhero. No, and never even make that mistake. He's not a superhero. He's a king. Yeah. Who's in a role who sometimes go and help the Avengers. But mostly he's a king. And all of his run was based on the odd, odd politics of Wakanda. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, maybe a lot of this stuff didn't scan and Marvel thought that wouldn't translate well that our hero basically is monogamous. Mm. No, uh, not monogamous. Yeah, monogamous. Yeah, monogamous. Like having one love interest. Is he a Mormon? No, we cannot have that. Uh, I can see how she would have found that. See, that's... Like, it makes you wonder... If for Phase 3 specifically, right, like Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange, whether they are really trying to stick to some version of loyalty to the comics that hasn't been evident in the first two. Because I'm like, you know, if you were willing to make the leap of allowing Kenneth Branagh to turn Loki into like this Shakespearean anti-hero or like anti-villain... And, you know, basically have all the fangirls be like, oh, he's so cute, it's Tom Hiddleston. So. That was more the actor, I think, than the director. Right, but then, like, why would you Mm -hmm. cast an actor like that in that particular role if you weren't willing to compromise? And it seems like the further along Marvel get, the more they're butting heads with their directors. And, I mean, it could be, like we said, there are positives and negatives to that. But in this particular instance, they have backed themselves into a very tight and very small corner. Well, we'll see what they will bring. Yep. Day and day. Uh, anything else, news-wise? No. That's it. Well, there's been a lot of news. Shall we head on to the reviews? Yes. Uh, what should we, shall we start with the first Dynamite comic <laughs> that we ever talk about in this, in this podcast? Yeah, this is an episode of firsts, actually. <laughs> so, sure, uh, go for it. We will talk about Will Eisner, The Spirit, Issue 1, written not by Will Eisner, written by Matt Wagner, with art by Dan Chiquet. Uh And we're in the classic spirit mode, only that the spirit is missing. Well, let's, I mean, let's go for some background on okay. the spirit. For those listeners who were born after 1980, who is the spirit? Uh, the spirit is a sort of a detective character created by Will Eisner, for the newspaper, back when newspaper comic was a big, big thing. And he bas- uh, Eisner basically wanted to do a straight-up detective comics, and they forced him to put this guy in a domino mask and give him, give him an origin story because that was the thing for the and day. what an origin story he had. Yeah, uh, he's... Denny Colt. Denny Colt is a young either policeman or private detective, depends on the origin story, who gets in an accident while pursuing a criminal, and everybody assumes that he's dead. But he was actually in a coma. And he rises from the grave and decides he will use his death to keep on pursuing criminals as a vigilante. Right. While working in close ties with the police. And that's it. The strip. That's about it. <laughs> that's, that's the plot. Now, the strip that covers it. is mostly known for how inventive Will Eisner was, both at the time and even by today's standards. The spirit is something... Classic spirit is something that needs to be seen to believe the way Eisner played with perspective, the way he used the titles as part of the comic page, the way he used the size of the page to do yeah. all sort of crazy stuff. To be specific, we're talking about like artistic innovation. Yes, yes. Because in terms of plot and story, I don't it was know always very, it was always very basic. Yeah. The point wasn't this is an amazing story. The point was this is Will Eisner. Mm. Look what the man can do. And in a way, it very much reminds me of, say, a Spielberg project. Yeah. You don't go for a Steven Spielberg project for 
well, this is some very thoughtful philosophy. You're going to see what Steven Spielberg can do with even the simplest of ideas. Mm-hmm. Answer, he can do Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. Answer, what can Will Eisner do? The Spirit. And that's a problem, because most people that want to do The Spirit after that aren't Will Eisner. Yeah. There have been several attempts at revival. Uh, the most successful was the Darwin Cook run for DC. Uh, not, not Vertigo, just DC, which mm-hmm. he... Written and drawn. No, Vertigo, the spirit. Yeah. That uh, would have been interesting. For 12 issues. After that, that, ho- that series was continued by... Mark Evanier. Mark Evanier. And there was... Uh, Brian Azzarello had a short run doing DC's first wave sub-imprint about pop heroes. You forgot one. Which one? The movie. What movie? Oh, you know what movie, Tom. I know not what you speak of, Sean. There was never a spirit <laughs> movie... Directed by one Frank Miller. Crazy pants. <laughs> Never happened. Never happened. Okay. And, okay, so it's a problem because the spirit is one of those characters that scream for revival because he's a big classic character and because Eisner is no longer with us and mm. you can use him, you can buy him. You and this is in DC. This is that. Yeah. The license reverted from them to Dynamite. Or Dynamite yeah. bought it from them? Dynamite yes. bought it, I assume. Okay. Uh, Which so, we were talking about them acquiring so, licenses. Yes. There you go. So on one hand, the spirit screams for revival. Because he's such a generic character and setting that you can see other people using him. On the other hand, he's such a generic character that most people want him for Will Eisner. And you can see it in the title. This isn't called the spirit. This is Will yeah. Eisner the spirit. His name is part of the title. And so the comic is on one hand tied to his vision for the character and on the other is forced to do something which he wouldn't have done simply because it's an ongoing uh, monthly and not a newspaper strip and it's not a something that's meant to be avant-garde-ish. Right, the composition is is taking into account contemporary modes of publishing comics but the story, not so much. And this was actually something that surprised me because when they announced this, when they first solicited the book, they, you know, they said it's Matt Wagner. And Matt Wagner is, you know, I mean, you still haven't read Grendel, which I need to rectify no. that situation at some point. I do. But um, whenever I read about Grendel, I became less and less interested in actually no, no, reading no, 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 Grendel. No, no, no. You need to get away from all that Hunter Rose stuff and you need to read like the core Grendel narrative. Because it is amazing. But we'll set that aside. So Matt Wagner has had other projects coming out in the interim. And, you know, he hasn't really been challenging himself. And then they announced him as the writer of the spirit. Presumably as a marketing point. The problem is, I'm reading this issue. And it does not read like Matt Wagner. It reads like Matt Wagner trying to channel... 1940s writing style. I mean, the dialogue here is just... 1940 or is it 1970s? I know where this Dr. Cobra creep is holed up, and I'm going to bag him for you. Damn it, Denny Colt, you're only a private detective, and that deranged chemist is dangerous, claims he'll poison the city's entire water supply. Look, son, we go back a long way. Lord knows my daughter has a soft spot for you. But this is police business. I mean... I can. I almost want to put on like a zoot suit and have like a little. Well, the gangsters do have a zoot suit. (laughs) When does this take place? Is it the 1940s? 40s? The 70s? No, the fashion really strongly goes towards 20s, 30s, 40s, like that Mm. period of time. Yeah, and it's just. I mean, Boulder wears suspenders. 
<laughs> yes, he does. You, you know, like the, the, I, I'll say this for the artwork, uh, Dan Shkade really is going for the character design. Like, pseudo-authentic fashion yes. that, that tells you what, what it's kind not of an average dynamite looking comic. It's not a Dynamite mm. House style. It's Isn't it? Because no, no. Dynamite is also doing like the shadow and the fantasy. Yeah, and, and they that. don't look like that. They don't look like that. No, okay. and f- thank God this looked like that and not like the shadow. Okay. But on the other hand, he tries to imitate the character style that Will Eisner had, mm-hmm. but it isn't the same thing in the backgrounds and in the cityscapes. So it's like cartoonish characters in a more regular, regularly designed, realistic city. Right. Which doesn't really fit. I'm not... It's not bad, but it's just... It doesn't have the flash to it. And we both... When, when we decided to review this, we both, I think, ran to our collections and reread at least parts of... Uh, right. Of Darwin Cook's like, The you, Spirit. You can't elude the comparison to Darwin Cook's To, to the recent revival. Because that was the last point yeah. at which anyone made a serious attempt to revive this property. Because, you know, The Spirit... Like we said... The Spirit is not recognized for being a great story. It's recognized because Eisner's artwork broke a lot of new ground. Mostly because a lot of people, people have, mostly because a lot of people who've read the stories are now in their 70s. At minimum. No, but even, I mean. Who look, reads the Spirit archives? Who reads the republished stuff? Only, only Eisner aficionados. I don't know if it's that's not true. stuff that, I don't think it's stuff that young people want to read, mostly because a lot of it is quite, Dated storytelling wise and the racism. Oh, um, oh, see, the, the old. No, no, have you pro- read Early Spirit? Oh, yes. Have you seen Ebony? Yeah. Ebony remains problematic. Every writer that comes afterwards, whether it's Cook yeah. or whether it's Wagner, always has to do something like you know. Well, we have to deal with Ebony. We just have to do something about it. We have to. We cannot let it stand as it is because well, but the the issue is I don't agree with you about like you know. Who would want to read the old stuff? Because, you know, people today still read Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a hundred plus year old novel, right? Like, yeah. No, sometimes no. And you they, can... and, they, and they read Tintin. I, I'm not saying all old comics are unreadable. I'm saying the spirit specifically, I don't think it has a lot of appeal to younger readers. It right. has an appeal to someone like me who likes to read old stuff just to, you know, because I think I should know old stuff. But as not a, to someone like me who's like, well. Yeah. Or even some guy who just picks stuff off the shelf. Right. I, and that's the weird thing. Like, this issue is clearly trying to sell an atypical spirit story. Because Wagner's it's coming what, in and he's like, the spirit isn't actually in this It's issue. whatever happened to Danny Colt. Exactly. Danny Colt is gone when the issue begins. And when it ends, people are like, well, we should probably find him. It's been two years. It reads like the sort of thing you would see in a, in a contemporary Archie remake. Right? Like... Some kind of approach that's deliberately working against the norm. Mm. So it's like, okay, the spirit is usually this. Let's take the spirit out of the picture, focus on two secondary characters, and they are going to be the protagonists of this story, and their job is to find out whatever happened to the spirit. The problem is, why would you care about the spirit in the first place? Like, when you're talking about Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, you kind of care about Superman before you get to that point, right? So it matters when all of this is happening. Here it's like you're trying to deconstruct the spirit by taking him out of the story while at the same time being loyal to the tone yeah. and the look of the I think I think it's a good idea in theory because by taking the spirit out and building him via other people, A, you're making sure that you're establishing the supporting cast, 
which is important to, to this type of book because the spirit, as we've said, is not the strongest character by himself. Not but who would you define as the strongest person? In this no, book? well, it, you don't have to have one character. You have here uh, Ebony. You have his partner slash sidekick. You have uh, Commissioner Dolan. So they're trying. They're trying to build a supporting gas, and they're building up a mystery, which is a good idea in theory. In practice. I mean, in practice, he's it's, writing them as if they're 1940s characters. Yeah. Like, you know, comics in the 1940s didn't prioritize deep characterization. There was no such concept. So the idea and, that and Commissioner the, Dolan, for example, is, like, what what can you say about him? He likes to smoke of, a pipe. He loves smoking a pipe. He has a daughter who, you know, is putting gray hairs on his head. And she, of course, is in love with the spirit. And... I mean, it's really, really, really typical. You know, like there's no real subversion of any kind of. Yeah, you should. If if you're gonna do know. something such a revival, you need to start stronger. What and, did Cook do with these characters? Uh, when Cook started, the first issue was just the spirit in action. It was in Medias Rust. There's a reporter being kidnapped, and the spirit is out to rescue her. That's it. Mm. And then he built the other characters and the story setting slowly over twelve issues. Okay. You know, but the were they origin- written in the same style? Uh, no, no, no. It was it was an odd thing. It was just like Batman the Animated Series, which was sort of no mm. time and all time because the spirit dressed like in nineteen, you know, like in the nineteen forties, right. and the commissioner was an old guy. But the other characters had phones, had TV, had mm. cell phones. So it was an intent, an intentional tonal clash. Okay, uh, that might actually work better than trying to uh, recreate the setting. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that really bothered no, I, me I, here again, I could see this he's kind trying of thing. too hard. Who did did Wagner did Sandman Mystery Theater, or am I confused? Yeah. With so? so that's that's the sort of thing that he's trying to do here, I think. Because but Sandman Mystery Theater was so much more complex, even yeah. from the first issue. I mean, he was working with like what Wesley Dodds, right? Yes, but which is the same type of character. Is he originally? Who cared about the Sand that Sandman, the guy in the gas mask? The fourteenth member of the JSA that nobody re- that nobody read about. I think the difference there is that Wesley Dodds appeared in comics before Wagner tried to bring him back. It was uh, it was Robinson Starman. Wasn't where... that before Robinson Starman? No, uh, Sandman Mystery Theater. I think came... at the same time, either at the same time or shortly afterwards, okay. because a lot of the characters that Robinson introduced ended up turning up. In Sandman Mystery Theater. So I think there was some, some parallels over there. But anyway, so like that was a situation where before they got to let's bring this character back, he turned up in other books. And the spirit, it's like, all of these things aren't in continuity anyway. So it's like, cause they're like, what is the spirit continuity? No such thing, right? It's, it's episodic by definition. And like, Cook, we're dealing here with a dynamite book that's following up a DC book. So I wouldn't expect Wagner's run here to have any no, no, no. interconnection with no, Cook's run. Nothing and whatsoever. it's like, so where is the iconic reinterpretation of the spirit that you are trying to build on? Because going back to 1940 is the wrong move. Comics aren't written like this anymore. And for good reason, I would say. Yeah, it's not bad, but it's not very good. No, I just feel like you know, it's trying to. Yeah, hard. I think I'll wait for the arc to conclude, and if it gets good enough reviews, I'll go and reread it. I won't. Okay, I won't because again, like it's just I, I respect what they're trying to do, but it's missing that element of 
we know how this always goes. Let's do something different, which I think has defined a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I keep making this comparison because it keeps popping to mind. Archie. Oh. They have tried so hard to take Archie in all of these different directions that acknowledge contemporary considerations. Uh, the other Dynamite revival, which was more successful, Shaft. Yeah. Which worked better because they said, well, you all know the joke version, the funky black exploitation version. We're going to play him straight as a mm-hmm. 1970s greedy crime drama. And that worked. That in itself is a resistance to what came before. Yeah. Like, you know, when the you return working... to the original Chef novels. Yeah. And here it's like, the only real thing that Wagner does is to take Denny Colt out of the equation. But so what? Yeah. What, 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 what do you got left? Yeah. Mm. Well, you got left with another title, a new number one, and we've been waiting for that one. Because it's been delayed. Again. Again. But it's here. Eight House number one Arclight, written by Grant. Or is it Eight House Arclight number one? No. It's Eight House number one Arclight. Yes. Okay, so... (laughs) Written by Brandon Graham, art by Marion Churchland, published via Image. Okay, so just to remind our listeners as to what Eight House is, and I had to do a lot of research to figure this out. Because Brandon Graham basically confined all the key information to his Tumblr. Here's how it goes. Damn you, Tumblr! Ugh. It keeps crashing Mozilla Firefox, and that makes I, 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 really I stay hard. the hell away from Tumblr. I'm too old for Tumblr. Okay, so Brandon Graham yes. of Profit Fame is collaborating with a group of talented writers and artists to create a shared fantasy universe within Image. It's self-contained in the sense that it's not spilling over into other Image titles, but it is a shared world that will appear originally. The idea was that it would be shared between four core miniseries. No, three three core miniseries, each had four issues. No, no, no. It was Arclight, Kiem, Mirror oh, and right. Yoris. I forgot so Yoris. Four right. core stories. Also, it turns out that From Under Mountains that we talked about last time is an set in the Eight House world, but is not part of the core narrative. Yes. That plan seems to have changed. What's happening now is that Eight House has been compressed into one series, but that series will alternate within itself to have all four of the miniseries. So, for example, the first two issues, Eight House number one and Eight House number two are Arclight. Eight House number three is Kiem. Four and five are Yoris. Six through nine are Mirror, the uh, Emma Rios book. And then they'll be going back to Arclight with number it's nine. It's sort of a cross between Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers book because it, when it was reprinted in trade paperbacks, they didn't do it mini by mini. They did it Okay, these are how you're supposed to read them issue by issue. Right. One, and, one, 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 two, two, and, two, two, two. And like half Cloud Atlas, I would assume. Well. Well, we don't know yet because we only read the first issue. Right. From what he's described, yes. the idea seems to be that every storyline, like these four storylines that will appear rotating throughout the series, focus on a different aspect of the world. What we don't know is whether these four are meant to interconnect at the end. Or is it something like the Artite Garage, which was basically Mobius saying, well, this is the universe, do whatever you want with it. Right. And the fact that From Under Mountains was not solicited as Eight House From Under Mountains, and yet it's set in the same world, seems to suggest that there's sort of, there's a broader plan in place, but maybe they don't have the specifics yet. There's a, there's a story, and then there's the universe in which the story takes place, and the end of the story is, doesn't mean the end of the universe. Right. Especially since in this particular case, like the issue that we're about to review is 
for all it should have been ArcLight number one. Hmm. Instead, it's issue number one, ArcLight. We'll be getting two issues of that, and then ArcLight won't be coming back until issue ten. Okay. So it, it, it the the packaging of the story might also be different. We don't know yet. Okay. So the story, yes. uh, we have Sir ArcLight, mm-hmm. female knight. I think male knight actually. I'm not sure. It's okay. <laughs> That's part of the plan. Okay. He she is a knight and he has the lady, his companion with him and the lady is a Cthulhu nun thing and they both travel the land returning to their home city after a long long absence and there are signs of something strange afoot and also people in the city apparently aren't looking for their return very much. They are not popular is what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Um, it's a very strange first issue for Brandon Graham because Brandon Graham up until now was a very compact storyteller. Uh, whenever I finished the first issue of a Brandon Graham series, I've always knew, okay, this is what I want to do with this for good or ill. And this is very lightly paced. I mean, this is very, many of the pages have four panels, two panels even. Beautiful double yeah, yeah. spreads. Do, uh, beautiful spreads, and the plot is very light. You know, we have these people, and they walk, and they have their interaction, and they're, they're back home, and then they have some more interaction, and that's it. It's odd. I have to it's say... Just, I'm just, maybe it's so odd to me because I wasn't expecting something like this from Brendan Graham. I think you can feel the hand of Marion Churchland in the plotting, not only in the art, because... The pacing does remind me of her graphic novel Beast, which was also, it was, you know, 100 plus pages, but very, very lightly paced. There wasn't a lot of plot there also. Well, the problem here, and I'm saying problem, well, for, I mean, I really enjoyed the issue. But oh, yeah. yeah. The issue, the situation here is that there are two ways to look at this, and part of the problem is the lack of clarity. If this is technically issue one of four, for Arclight, right? As it was originally meant to be. So, in that sense, it is kind of light because not a lot happens. There's a, at the end, you get sort of like the implication as to what the plot is about when he comes back to her and says, you know, I found your, what we're looking for has been found. So you, you kind of figure that part out. But it really is sort of sparse. However, if this is the first issue of Eight House, Right? Yes. It is a world building issue. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I feel like it succeeds more than profit. Yeah, it's because profit threw so much at you in well, the first issue. Oh, I mean, you remember yeah. like the dull mantle and the, this, and well, he goes over here and he goes I disagree blah, blah, blah. because I love profit, but I agree on the term of in world building, it's a good exercise, not only because it's, it's, again, it's a beautiful piece of world building and mm-hmm. art, but they're consciously mimicking Yoshitaka Amano here, and mm-hmm. it's phenomenal but also it's new it's not one of those fantasy universe where you're reading it and then you're like okay so where are the elves where are the dwarves where are the orcs and the dragons no 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 you have no idea what's about to happen this is this owes more i'd say to someone like china mievel maybe than not china mievel you know what no that's a bad example spire is china mievel someone something it's more ursula kayla gwind than tolkien yes it's yeah. more like especially uh, with a gender fluidity yes that's definitely part of this yeah and not knowing everything on the start is part of the intention here. And it's mm-hmm. not just oblique. It's intentionally mysterious and it works. Right. And Churchland's art goes so far towards showing you, like, this really bizarre landscape. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the design for the lady, 
yeah. that Arclight serves is, you know, deliberately meant to be sort of like this weird mm. and yet sort of familiar. Like, is she a tree? Is she a Cthulhu and, thing? And, and I think it's very important. Brendan Graham does great work on the couple because they, they don't have a lot of interaction, but you get this deep, serious connection between them mm-hmm. in the very few words and in the way they exchange glances and they touch each other. It's, it's charming. Brendan Graham, I think, has always been good writing couples. Uh, King City. You know, for all the oddness that was there, it was basically a book about love, about young people in love. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know we disagree about, uh, what was the other one, Multiple Warheads? Yeah. But it was also, in its core, a book about two people in love going to the road. Yeah. And this is, you know, old people, not old people, more mature people in love. I mean, Prophet also had sort of that element of, from well, time to time you had sort of... This- late, I don't know if you read later issues, did introduce a proper couple, more proper couples... As far as Prophet can have something called proper couple. Right. But yeah, it's... Brandon Graham can do love. Yeah. That's an odd thing to say, because most comics, when they do couples, it always feels to me a bit... Not not most comics, you know, most serialized mainstream comics, it always seems... I would specify that even further. I mm. say most serialized science fiction comics yeah. have difficulty balancing the new ideas, yeah. right? Like the new universe with the human the, element. Yes, yes. The that's, Fuse that's had that problem. You remember Cop- the, the fuse had that problem. Copperhead, Red. Copperhead really surprised me in that sense because like mother and son, you would think it would be the easiest thing in the world, and it didn't work. Um, and like on the other side of that spectrum is Saga, mm-hmm. where you know Marco and Alana are the center. The, they're like the heart of the story, and the relationship between them is the heart of the story. And like you feel bad when they fight. You know, it is a love story, and yet look at all these weird. You know, Fiona's tables and giant trolls. And I and think I think the setting and the pacing here basically tells us this isn't going to be the story of the world because they're starting in Medias Ross. And they're not setting this up as, well, whatever strange thing is going to happen to them is the fate of the entire universe depends on it. In most of these stories, this the story you're reading is the most important story in the universe because, well, otherwise, why would you focus about it? But Brandon Graham and... And Mary and Churchill are saying, this is one story in this grand, beautiful, mysterious new right. world. I Watch think, this. I think Immerse only, yourself in this. The only real problem here is that because we don't know what to expect because the plans change mm-hmm. and, and like it's so confusing now. So, for example, next issue of this is Arclight. Right? Yes. But we know that that doesn't conclude their storyline. Yeah. Because the next two chapters come later. But then, okay, so when Kim turns up in, in three, so we have new writer, new protagonist, no, sorry, it's still Brandon Graham writing, new artist, and a new protagonist in a different part of the world. And it's like, should we be reading this with the expectation that these stories will be coming together at the end, or are they just and separate things? pacing would be a problem between issues, because if you're really stopping this one in the middle, and then you have like six months waiting How for How would Arc, you like- collect it in trade? Well, I assume like the only things that come I ass- together. I assume like seven soldiers. Again, you just collect it the way it was published no. and the way it makes sense to the trader. But, but if they do that, then the the first trade that we'll see from this is mirror because the the Emma Rio series is the only one where all four issues are coming out one after the other. Well, they can do uh, Arclight one and two, and then mirror and then one Kim, and two. That would be that's that be again. Weird? That's what seven soldiers did. Yeah, the first raid was Seven Soldiers Zero, 
And then I think Frankenstein one and two, right. Shining Knight one and two, but and Bulleteer one and two. But Seven Soldiers was a collection of miniseries. Yes, this is one ongoing. Well, this is one ongoing, which is a hostess. Maybe it's better to think of this as sort of an odd anthology title, where right. simply the anthology just every issue is a, is a story, but it's. It's like 2008 if every it issue had be. 22 pages of one story. That's exactly the, the thing that I wish Graham had clarified in the sort of overall information sphere. Because in an anthology title, you don't expect there to be any connection between the different storylines. Mm. Whereas here, it's like, okay, it is within the realm of possibility that Arclight will do something in these first two issues that pays off in Kiem or mm. that pays off in Yoris or that pays off in Mirror. And so you should be paying attention not just to the specific story that's happening here, but, like, what's going on mm-hmm. in general. And, like, I don't, should we be having that level of awareness when we're engaging the story? Or is it really just, you know, Arclight, number two, come back in issue 10 and you'll find out what happens to him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Churchland's art is spectacular. Yeah, I cannot say is, that enough. She is great. It's good to see her getting proper work after, I don't know, years since she'd done something for Elephant Man. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and Elephant Man wasn't the best fit for her. She was good there, but this is her thing. And also, I mean, it's so painstakingly crafted that I think it's also the right decision to put her on the book with rotating casts mm-hmm. built into it. So, like, and, and in fact, that might be part of the reason why the plans changed. Like, she now has, when she completes issue number two, she has a six-month gap to get to the next one. And she needs to write From Under Mountains. Right. So it's possible that maybe that was part of the reason why things shifted here. I'm here for this. I, I am sticking it's around. It's weird how Brandon Graham has become... We've talked about Grant Morrison. Brandon Graham has become this sort of a master of running, of running multiply writers because Prophet is now... A, co- a collaborative project, you know, you, he writes it with Simon Roy and Gerth Manningers, and there's like, hang on, Profit is still ongoing? Yes, there's like, it hasn't finished. The last miniseries has been delayed because ah, of Brandon okay. Graham. Okay. But for a long, long time, Profit has been dozens of artists at this point working on it together. Artists, sure, but and, not writers. And, no, no, and he was writing it with Simon Roy and with when? Yeah, Simon Roy has credit writers on most of issues of Profit. Really? Yes. And now he's doing Island. He's running an anthology oh, title. Okay. So he's become sort of a. These are the people I like to work with. Let's see what we can do together. Sure. And it's, he's doing apparently Adventure Time now. Uh, yeah. He's, well, he he was doing art and design for the series. Yeah, mm-hmm. but he's not well, running. You could, you could do worse. Yes. Yes. He's not running the series. That would have been great. I think. Well, that's the thing. Like, now they're going for season seven. You know, call Brendan Graham because Pendleton Ward, the series creator, stepped down. Yeah. It's like, well, if you happen to be looking for a showrunner, <laughs> you could do worse than Brendan Graham. Clearly, he has the stones for it. Um, Good issue. I really, really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah. And I'm, you know, it's, it's atypical. It's of such a brush of fresh air. Image, right? Fresh to have breath of fresh air. A brush of fresh air. <laughs> that too. Maybe that's why they call it in the world of Arclight. Sure. Ah, right. a brush of fresh air. Well, this world has its own alphabet, so mm. clearly. Did you try to on. do the alphabet thing? I was yeah, too lazy. Just the first panel, it reads uh, tracks. She writes tracks on the ground. I wow, see. that's so deep. Well, I mean, that's usually how it goes with fake alphabet. It's like you have the, the artist has to like, oh, I have to do all this thing now with all these dots. Keep now it you reader must suffer as I have <laughs> suffered. <laughs> But, okay. uh, yeah, very innovative, very interesting. I'm here for more. 
Our last number one is mm. a miniseries. Again eagerly, from Image. Eagerly awaited miniseries. Yes. We Stand on Guard, number one, written by Brian K. Vaughn. We have discussed this man, I believe, in yes. this very podcast. His name may have come up from time and to time. And drawn by Steve Scors, back from his long, long, long banishment to the wilderness of Canada. <laughs> Speaking of... No, he's Canadian. I mean, that explains so much. Hang on, was this confirmed to be a miniseries? Yeah, yeah, I believe it. it's a five-issue mini. That doesn't, it doesn't say that anywhere on the cover or in the indicia. So I, really, I had been assuming that this was an ongoing. I mean, I really wish that image would be clearer. I remember that being solicited as a mini. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The internet says it's a mini. Well, if the internet says, I suppose. Then again, we could have a lumberjane situation right around here because it's a Ah, Brian K. Vaughn project. We never know. Really good. The man does write short stories for a long, long while. Short limited stuff? I think not since... Well, we had Private Eye, but even that was 10 issues, and he's threatening more and more. What was the last Brian K. Vaughn miniseries to come Spider-Man, Dr. Octopus thing? That was a good series. It just was 10 years ago now. I guess. Um, Anyway, uh, so the story. Would you like to present this one? Yes. Blame Canada, basically. No, okay. So the story begins in Ottawa... uh, in the future, 2112, the White House has been hit by a drone strike. In retaliation, they launch missiles at Canada, presumably blaming them for the initial attack. Uh, we experience these attacks through a family. The only survivors are Tommy and Amber, uh, whose parents die in the attack. So then we jump 12 years later. Amber is alone, living in the woods, and she meets up with a resistance group made up of Canadian civilians. She meets the Wolverines. And they're playing Red Dawn. That's what it is. It's Red Dawn, the that American invasion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can... Well, there's also this one little thing that maybe didn't appear in Red Dawn, which would be the giant robots. That's kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Red Dawn might have been more interesting if it had had giant robots. Mm, okay. It's... It's a strange idea, because when it was first published, the idea of, okay, it's giant robots and America attacks Canada, it sounds like a joke. It sounds like an odd gag comic, but this is played dead straight. The yeah. horrors of war are here for you to see. Anna, Anna's house, uh, Amber's house, gets hit, and we see her father burn alive. So there's nothing funny about this. Which is odd, because war against Canada is a th- between America and Canada is a thing that exists in fiction, but it was always presented as a joke, right? You had South Park the movie, you had Canadian Bacon, and you had Infinite Jest. And you had Howard Mackey's Mutant X, which ended... That was a joke. With Canada invading... America, yes. Oh, and then um, they blew up the moon. Um, as one does in a war with Canada. Uh, it's... Yeah, he's playing this relatively straight, but at the same time... The design for these American robots, they're basically giant dogs. Well, the two that we see, no, one, the first that we see actually is a giant dog. The no, other the second is, one is also like this four-armed, a bit more complicated, but it's interesting because in, like I said, in regular giant robot stuff, they would be humans, but this is more, if you want to do a giant robot, you would make it something with four legs because two legs, isn't a good design well, I, idea. Well, I wonder if it's also meant to call back to the walkers from the Empire in uh, Star Wars. Partly. They, they go like, you know, four legs. Uh, 
Okay, let's let's talk about several things. The first thing that I like is that it isn't once you decided this is a serious thing and this is America invades Canada, this isn't America is an awful imperialistic forces and the Canadians are all good decent people who just want to live in peace. There are hints that the Canadians are responsible for the first strike. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are hints that the Canadian resistance is lying to its operators on field regarding what happens with what are the robots? Right, they're getting walk. incorrect intelligence, incorrect and or lies. Yes, and, yeah. So there is the Brian K. Vaughan guaranteed. This isn't just me being stupid doing black and white action thing. There Amber, is Amber, for example, yeah. what she does at the end of the issue. We won't yeah. spoil it, but you know she crosses a moral line without even thinking about it twice. Yes. So she's not like the sweet innocent protagonist who. You know, is exposed to the horrors of war, but maintains her humanity. She's like, no, I'm, I'm in. Like, I'm part of this. There's a, there's a good decent amount of plot in this issue. This is like the opposite of Eight House. <laughs> oh, well, there, yeah. it has forty, pa- almost forty pages to work with. Three dollars, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good deal. Image Comics. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, we, we're presented with the new characters. We're presented with the situations. We get not one, two action scenes. So Brian K. Vaughn can work with plot and characters and themes and do everything in his own way, and it's magnificent. Yeah. The man is a professional to the nth degree, I would say. And he's working here with an artist who really complements his strengths. Because, for example, you have all of these new characters who are being introduced, but they are visually distinct. Mm-hmm. You know, you can... There are, like, chief... And Kabani are both black-haired women who are about the same height, but you could never confuse them. You know, so in that sense, there is sort of this attempt to make them both visually distinct, and then also, you know, she meets this actor who's part of the resistance, and, you know, that's his thing. He only speaks French, right? You know, Vaughn, on the one hand, is distinguishing between these characters and giving you enough to pull you in and draw you forward, and the art is also setting them apart. Yeah, Steve Scors is a magnificent artist. He did short stints on Spider-Man and Wolverine in the late 90s, early 2000s. He is best known, comic-wise, for doing Doc Frankenstein for the unfortunately short-lived Burly Man uh, Entertainment, mm-hmm. which was the Wachowski's sub-imprint of comics. Right. It was glorious. It was really was a gloriously... Stupid series and gloriously <laughs> good-looking series. Uh, this is him doing things a bit more serious. I think maybe I expected uh, something less serious here because right. it was Steve Scores. No, no, the solicitation very... text was very, you know, it. even at the Image Expo when they announced this, it did seem like they were going for a comedic or satirical Giant take. robots! Something like Kyle Baker's... Um, st- he had that four-issue miniseries about, like, you know... Uh, Cognitively challenged people who are sent to Iraq. Special forces. Special forces. Like something like that yeah. is where you think it's going. Even though I remember, like, I don't, I've never seen Brian K. Vaughn do wacky humor slapstick stuff. Well, we do get the, the other Brian K. Vaughn trademark, which is somebody spewing a speech about some strange factor which isn't really related to the plot, but goddammit, Brian K. Vaughn thinks Superman origin as a Canadian is interesting and he will talk about well, this. Well, no, there was something interesting. Well, there is something the related to the plot, yeah, to the no, theme. To the theme. Exactly, the in, in the sense that they're talking about they don't know the specifics, right? Like, there's a 
it's relatively subtle because it is Vaughn after all. He doesn't have to hit you over the head with it. But there's a theme throughout this entire issue of, you know, disinformation or misinformation or what do you not know? So for example, you know, the United States retaliates against Canada. Are they right? Are they wrong? We don't know. Um, Amber starts talking with this person that she's just met about, you know, Superman and mythology and who really created him and what his origins really are. And nobody can say for sure because this is a hundred years in the future, 200 years in the future, mm. right? It's very distanced from contemporary knowledge. And also nobody has internet here. So clearly there's sort of this limitation of what do you really know? Yeah. In, and that that's that's like a thematic thing throughout the issue. Which the I big think is great. theme that Vaughn talks about in the letter page is this is about America versus Canada. Now, for this to happen, we actually need some American characters, and we don't really get that here. Mm-hmm. So I assume the next issue is going to develop this further and going to introduce new characters because if it is a limited series, he doesn't have a lot of space to work with. It this isn't, you know, in five issues. This isn't. Uh, Saga, you can't just bring in all characters all the time. Right. There's a, there's a danger here of bumping up against the page limit and then suddenly realizing, well, we might as well just, you know, yeah, wrap and, everything up quickly. And, and I think, well, it sort of has to be limited because Scorse is not a fast artist. Mm-hmm. He was in 10, 10 years since his last projects. Right. And the level of detail here would take time. Yeah. He's an amazing artist, really. Such a shame he's spent wasting his time doing uh, concept art for bad movies. The, the facial expressions in this issue? I mean... You want me to make you head this artist now? Please do. He was working with the Wachowskis on Speed Racer and on Jupiter's Ascending. Ooh. And now you're like... <laughs> See, Speed Racer... No, we don't need to talk about that. Jupiter Ascending, I tried to watch it. I really <laughs> did. I was like, I'm going to go in with an open mind because I liked Cloud Atlas after all. And I'll, you know, I'll try. And... After I tried, I was just like, why don't I just skip fast forward to the parts where you see, like, space? Because she's cleaning toilets again, and I don't have the patience for that. And I mean, Mila Kunis isn't particularly... Anyway, uh, small criticism aside, this, I think, is close to as perfect as first issues can get. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, and it's the best of the week for me. I am here for all of it. All right, shall we move on to the trade review, and you will introduce it because you chose it. Yes, I did. So, Not really a trade, uh, one of our first ARC reviews, because the trade is only coming out in September, I believe. Right. And as I said, this is an episode of first. This is the first time we've gone back to a series where we reviewed the first issue and looking at the completed ARC. Mm-hmm. So we'll be reviewing the first six issues of Effigy. This is by Tim Seeley and Marley Zarcone from Vertigo. Just a reminder of the setup... Uh, so Chandra Jackson is a disgraced child star. She was in this very popular TV show called Star Cops, ended up getting typecast, and it all went downhill from there. She went back to her hometown of Effigy Mound after a sex tape leak, and she became a cop. Her mother is basically Kris Jenner, and that was the point where the first issue sort of left off. She gets called in to investigate uh, a strange corpse. And that was as far as we got. And at the time when we reviewed it, we both had, I think, positive uh, uh, reactions yeah, to it. Because uh, we Chandra po- was an interesting character. We were positive to the plot and the characters. Mm-hmm. We were a bit weary of the, oh, what's the big mystery? Because we had too many of these. Yes. You know, well, what's the, what's the big answer? And the answer is we don't know. Yeah. So, <laughs> six issues in. 
What do we know? <sighs> okay. This, the problem, I'll say first and foremost that I did not like it towards the end. Like, I really did enjoy the first issue mm-hmm. in terms of the setup. I was interested in seeing what happened in second issue, third issue. I think when I hit issue five, I started getting this sinking feeling that we weren't going to get any real explanation mm. or resolution as to what began as a C plot and ended up overtaking the book. Because basically what happens here is that the book is structured around three plots that are progressing simultaneously. First of all, you have Chandra's storyline, which is that she has just come out of the academy. She is a new cop. She's investigating the murder of a president of the fan club of her former show. Yes. The second layer is um, Grant's storyline and how Edie comes into that. So they go to this convention and are investigating everything that's happening there and Chandra's old co-hosts and what happened to them. And then the C-plot is Scientology, Mm. basically. Except Xenu might actually exist this time. Okay, so here's the thing. As you described it, I enjoyed the A and B plot. The mm-hmm. C plot, I can let go. And I didn't, I didn't like the way it took over in the last issue. Exactly. Issue, the, the, the C plot becomes the A mm-hmm. plot. It's not even in the last issue. It's in the moment that you start realizing what's going on with the guy who jumps off the roof. Yeah, and it's a, sh- and it's a shame because I really like these characters. I really like Eddie because when she's first introduced and we're led to believe she's a creepy fan stalker mm-hmm. and then we discover that Yes, yeah, she's sort of a creepy fan stalker, but she's also a good friend to, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Chandra is legitimately Chandra. guilty. Yeah. Because they were friends and he, at the time, you know, he was male, so he encouraged her and then she never went back. Yeah. For and him. there's so much that could have gone wrong with the character of Eddie because it's a transgender. Crazy transgender. Yeah. But no, she has depth and she actually, has character, three dimensions, and mm-hmm. the way she interacts with the characters, with the other characters, with yeah. Chandra, they s- stop thinking about her as like, oh, she's this weirdo, and accept her as a human being. Yeah. Celie has this brilliant moment where Grant has been injured, and Edie's trying to help him, and he's like, don't touch me, don't touch me, and you think it's because he's disgusted by her, mm-hmm. but then you find out that, no, that's that's not his thing at all, it's something else altogether. Right? He's like, don't touch my blood. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, ah, so, you know, it plays on the expectation of, you know, the, the more negative representations and stereotypes of transgender characters. And then it's like, that's not what this is. And there are moments here where she is the victim of prejudice. I think in the fifth issue where she's in jail and the cop is saying, well, you're, you're certified as male on your birth certificate, so that's, Mm. that's how we're going to treat you and I'm going to strip you naked now. Right. But she's never become, it never becomes her sole feature. She's not simply the victim to be avenged by the straight characters. Yeah. So that I liked. And I liked the way they explored, uh, fan subcultures for this weird show. And I like the ideas that they, the show is built on this old stuff, uh, novels and stories written by this science fiction guy right. who never intended to become a children's show of all things. Right. Because he, yeah, is very, um, distasteful towards royalties from the show to put it mildly and but there's I'm, so there's so much to like it's just the strange small things well not small in the first few issues and then large in issue yeah. five and six 
that sort of niggle at it. And when it ended, I was like, well, what's going on? Oh, exactly. mind control, astral projection, strange visitors. I, I don't care. Like when you get to the end of the arc, the murder mystery that began the first issue is never resolved. In the sense that like we as readers know who's responsible, but the characters don't. So... And, and what shi- just happened? And right? apparently, it's gonna sh- and it shifts the whole setting. So the second arc is gonna be is it's going to have to be something completely different. Because well, no, I can see it. Being well, like because a they're no longer of the investigation. Yeah, but they're no longer uh, you know in one way or another. They're not in the same setting. They can't be just regular cops anymore after what happened in issue six. Mm, I don't know if that's true. They're physically being dragged away by the weird army people. Oh, the weird uh, faith, yeah. faith militia. Yeah. I had completely forgotten about that. How which could just you? goes to show you. No, because it's the Rainbow Coalition killing it's, people. It's the Rainbow Coalition of all religions in the world fighting Scientology. That's just. I would pay good money to see Christians, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, and. Thor worshippers? Thor, sure, why not? Go to war against Scientology. Like, I would just be sitting, you could just imagine me, like, sitting with some popcorn, being like, you know, so the Christians stormed the Scientology and, and the agno- burned all the Zeno. The, the atheists cheer and decide the diagnostics are, well, we cannot agree or disagree whether this war should be proper if it existed or if but it But we're did enjoying not. it anyway. We're liking uh, uh, it regardless. So anyway. And here, and like, they, they really do come in at the very end of the story, and it's like. Out of nowhere. What? You know what it reminded me of? Bodies. Yeah, we, we like doesn't stick the landing. We, we like the first three thirds of bodies, and then the last third is like the, the first mean, two thirds. Well, we can't even say it doesn't stick the landing because it's not over. You know, it can no. be good no, no, again. No, 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 no. But this is the conclusion of the first arc. Yes, in that sense, it fails to stick the landing because you get to the end and you're like, you're. You've done... Okay, so you've taken a 90-degree turn, and you're doing something completely different with your story. Fine. That's where Alish Kot went wrong with Zero, but I will <laughs> let go of that for now, because we're not reviewing Zero. But it's like, okay, now they're doing this thing, which means that the cult storyline that Seely has not developed, because it's never explained what's going on beyond sort of the obvious implication, right? Like, okay, Scientology, and they can now possess... Like, you know, mind control their people or, like, physically possess them. <sighs> Great. What does any of that have to do with Chandra, right? Like, or her mother. Like, the the way that they handled, like, at the end of the story, something happens to her mother, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so sloppily done because, like, you don't realize it until the end. But then uh, the issue before that, she says, like, you know, oh, could everything have been different? Uh, it's like, but see, for all of the problems, mm. I think I'm still in now. I'm more in than I was towards the first issue because I really like the setting. I really like the characters. Mm. And the odd plotting, well, it's a bit of a problem for me, but not that much. And I think Sunny know where he's going with this. And I don't think he's the type of writer who's going to end up with, it was all too weird for you to understand puny mortals. I don't know if that's true. Based on these six issues, because every time he goes back to the, uh, the cult, and you know they're talking about like eternal, and this mm-hmm. is the thing, and you're going here, and you're projecting, well, it, and it's like I I kind of get what you're doing, but I 
I'm not really into that. I, like, it's I'm, not... I'm into that in theory. There's a lot of stuff here that interests me. The sixth issue was a bit rushed, and the fifth issue, the second half of it, was also right. a bit all over the place. But I really like the art. Oh, really, really good. What what did Zircon do before? No idea. No idea. She's really good. Uh, I like the characters. I like a lot of the more small-time plotting. So you know what? I'm not going to read this issue by issue. I'm going to read the next arc. And I'm going to see where it's going. I don't think that I'll be coming back for Mm. more simply because it seems to me... You know what this reminds me of? Did you read that image series Clone? No. Okay. I despise clones. I grew up in the 1990s and I've read Spider-Man. That would do it. (laughs) The first Spider-Man comic I've read was the Dan Ben Riley. That also means that you're missing out on Orphan Black, though. But that's a different discussion. Anyway, um, the, the clone did something similar in the sense that you start out with a setup that's appealing. You know, you think it's interesting and you, you're going towards it. And then all of a sudden it's like very consciously steering you towards a different kind of story than you thought you were going to read. And like right now, for example, what is Chandra's connection to the cult? She's I got a, nothing. She's a celebrity. What does that have to do with with this like this specific? Well, with the side, well, if we're using Scientology as a basis, celebrities are a very important part. Right, but they don't recruit her. Well, maybe they want to. I don't know they, yet. If they want to, they haven't done it in the first six yeah. issues. It's like maybe it's I would need to know. Maybe it's something to do with her mother. Now there I is thematically, it's a very rich ground. You know, the way that Scientology has created a confusion between. Well, what's the limit of celebrity to an actual religious icon? Right. Because they would want Tom Cruise to be a religious icon. They would want him to be their Jesus. Right. And there's part of that in the story in terms of how Edie idolizes uh, Chandra. Yes. But I don't know. It's, I think my, my resistance to this, like the, the reason that I keep bumping up against this wall of I don't want to read anymore is because... The initial hook was former child star, now cop, investigations. And yet, she gets completely lost in this. No, but it's not, it's not a total shock. As soon as the nun with the dynamite shows up, it's like, hmm. Because okay. when they first solicited it, they mentioned strange stuff will happen in this town, and they they mentioned that there will be an odd cult. Right. That wasn't the first solicitation line. But you assume that the cult is related to the town and it's not like the the setting of effigy mound itself has nothing to do with the story well no 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 because even the murder victim ends up not being from that well they're strongly hinting that there is something to do you don't call a town effigy for nothing they can hint all they like where is it in the story right like the next arc well again the first arc conventional it doesn't have to explain everything but it does have to give you enough of a reason to keep going i think in terms of the plot and here it's like eh. i think i've gotten enough okay okay i disagree uh as as we we could (laughs) as we do yes it is not no 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 we agree it is not moral we agreed on three things this podcast this is uh two more than usual (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i will say that i really wanted to enjoy this and maybe when the series is complete, 
Because now, as it stands, it seems like a, it feels like a waste of time to me. It feels like I would have to be reading for another twenty issues before Celia gets to a point where I'd be like, "Okay, well, I guess I see where you're going now, and fine." It's like, I'd rather wait it out, I guess, and then maybe reconsider. But as it stands, I just this cult is like, and there's a scene like in the prison where Edie tries to fake them out by saying like, "I know what you're doing," and he's like, "We're not doing that." But the whole story was saying that you were doing that. So I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just not. A little more clarity mm-hmm. in the first arc would have helped keep things moving. Because, like when the faith militia shows up, right? So the guy says, I am you. What does that mean? Is know. he also a child star? Or was he her co-star? But she doesn't recognize him. So it's like, you know. It's not enough. Uh, and, I... the, and six issues, like, if you are selling this as your first trade, as your first collection, you need I'm, more. I'm more open to these type of shifts of everything you thought you knew is different. Um, that assumes I knew something in the first place, though. Well, <laughs> okay. Shall we finish? Yeah. Okay, so that was the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. And up until next time, bon, bon appétit. appétit.